Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air again, and we have a lot of ground to discuss in this uh, podcast episode, um, but then again, it seems like we always have a lot of ground to cover, but that's what makes uh, podcasting so unique. When you know you have a lot of ground to cover and you know it's worth sharing, good things are always going to come. And I've uh, been able to see that firsthand with each podcast I've uh, been able to generate. Thank you again to all of my uh, listeners who have been listening with me ever since uh, June of last year, last year, or whom have been uh, listening um, more so in the recent months. But the bottom line is the word has gotten out. And thank you, uh, my listeners, for being with me going on now almost uh, 10 months and before we know it come the start of June I will have been doing this for one whole year so this uh, journey obviously doesn't have any ends in sight but it's a journey that has um, yielded a lot of meaningful results thanks in large part to you all my fellow 101 podcast history listeners so in this uh, session that we're going to be discussing with regards to Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse, we're going to learn more about the Fresnel lenses. We briefly discussed them uh, from the previous uh, podcast, but we're going to learn more about the Fresnel lenses, especially with the impact that they will uh, make on the United States. We also will be surprised at some history that may have uh, taken place just before the first Fresnel lenses were put into play. But nonetheless, the new um, board itself, being um, the board that replaces uh, the 32-year reign of Stephen Pleasanton, is one that's uh, revolutionary unto itself because this board will be the one that will um, make America respectable, not just at home but abroad, and how its uh, lighthouses are um, maintained, preserved, and most important of all, can be truly seen as brilliant beacons. So our uh, first question uh, for this uh, podcast session is the following. What federal government board got established in 1852? That answer is the following. The U.S. Lighthouse Board. It came under the Treasury Department. The board itself became responsible for construction and maintenance of all lighthouses, including navigation aids. The new agency was set up in the wake of multiple complaints behind the previous administration's lack of proper funding to refusal in investing with the newest technological advances. And when I say previous administration, I'm not talking about like a presidential administration. I'm talking about a fella whom, as I mentioned just a short while ago, who had been in control for about 32 years, uh, being the lighthouse superintendent, Mr. Stephen Pleasanton. Yes, he performed heroic deeds in the early years of the 19th century by saving, by overseeing the the transferring of... um, essential documents 
not only for our nation's national security, but also documents like the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence from falling into the hands of the British, most notably um, around August 24th, 1814, when the British did sadly uh, burn uh, Washington during the uh, War of 1812. So while, yes, Stephen Pleasanton should always be remembered for performing those heroic actions, um, being superintendent of lighthouses or the lighthouse superintendent was truly not a role that he should have been um, assigned to in large part because he never had any true knowledge or experiences behind what it took to uh, effectively run a lighthouse along with all the other um, essential uh, duties that went into um, maintaining and funding what we now know as our brilliant beacons. So this light, new lighthouse board is really, in my opinion, a savior. This is something that uh, is almost like a reinvention. You know, yes, places, you know, it, or I should say even um, learning environments probably need reinvention. Uh, institutions of higher learning are always having to reinvent how they go about teaching. After all, um, with the world that we live in today, especially with a pandemic, I can only imagine what colleges and universities and schools in general have had to um, do in order to survive in terms of uh, ensuring that uh, young people still can get a good quality education. As for men like Joseph Henry and A.D. Bach, they were, the new, they were some of the new Lighthouse board members whom contributed significantly to scientific works involving electromagnetism in the case of Mr. A.D. Bach, whereas Joseph Henry himself went about inventing a precursor being an early version of a modern-day electric doorbell. So it's good to have people who have expertise with not just electronics, but with engineering, uh, people who have experience out on the waters. Bringing in people like this not only leads to good diversity, but it also leads to a um, better, um, it leads to basically better rapport and better uh, relations, not just from people on the board, but people from within the greater community, most notably the maritime industry, as well as fishing communities, whom are dependent upon lighthouses to ensure that goods coming in and out of the harbors all in all undergo what you call safe um, passageway. What became the Lighthouse Board's first official task? How about setting up a management system which would help guide their responsibilities? Here's something interesting that most of us probably would not know but we should also take into consideration by 1852, the United States has grown very dramatically. You know, here um, at the time, let's go back at least a good 60-some years when our um, U.S. Constitution was um, adopted. We only had 13 states. By 1852, we have 31 states. California was the 31st state admitted into the Union in 1850. So the board goes about dividing the, the Atlantic region, the Gulf, Pacific, and Great Lakes regions, or let alone the coasts, 
Atlantic coast, Pacific coast, the Gulf coast, the Great Lakes coast, they're all divided into districts. This makes sense because we can't have one person in charge of all the districts. That's uh, too, to me, that's too overwhelming. And if one person was assigned to all the districts, I'm not sure how any work could get done in an efficient manner. So let's learn a little bit more about the districts, not just the districts from an individual perspective, but, which, but what each of the four districts got assigned. And all four were assigned um, equal um, responsibilities. In other words, one district didn't get favored over the other three. So each of the four districts got assigned a Navy inspector. And what, what would the Navy inspector have done? Well, that person would have visited lighthouses every three months in his region, which also included duties such as lighthouse maintenance to supervision of the keepers. After all, uh, we will be talking, I should say, here momentarily about uh, what was expected of lighthouse keepers, 101 stuff, but to me, I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, in this case, with a Navy inspector having uh, supervision over lighthouse keepers because this is not a, to be a, a lighthouse keeper would be an honor unto itself, but it's also not something that should be taken for granted. Each district had an assigned Army engineer whom oversaw construction, including repairs to lighthouse buildings along with their lighting fixtures. The inspectors, the inspectors and engineers' reports were sent directly to the board where members could monitor progress and adequately address problems. So there you have it, folks. There is, there is no, how do you call it? There's really no such thing as being independent from superior command above. In other words, okay, if, whether you're a naval inspector or a... Um, or let alone uh, someone of um, being like an army engineer. Yes, you've got your duties to perform, but you also will have to go to board to the board above you to address your findings. And whatever the board dis determines, then they would let you, the um, inspector, naval inspector, or army engineer, know what can be done to uh, better improve um, a lighthouse that um, has not been able to meet its um, proper qualifications. What other assignments did lighthouse board members take up? They, um, they handled some other um, assignments that the previous administration handled under Stephen Pleasanton, but what the lighthouse board did was more of the opposite, all for the right reasons. Lighthouse board members awarded all construction contracts, but before giving them to the bidder or to the bidders they felt were worthy of um, being bestowed upon in terms of um, being awarded the contract, the contractors themselves had to be qualified to do the job. In other words, they just couldn't show up and say, well, um, I've got X, Y, and Z years of building experience. Um, I'm willing to bid X amount of money 
to to build this lighthouse. So am I qualified enough? No, no, that's not how it's going to work in this uh, new administration. They want to they basically want to do what we might think of as a complete background check on you. They want to know um, what your uh, overall um, credibility is like. It's almost like doing a background check with the Better Business Bureau in today's time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. So, besides making sure that contractors themselves were qualified to do the job required, board members also got placed into various um, executive committees, such as ones for lighting and engineering. And what do you know? The board also established a central depot on Staten Island, New York, where all essential lighthouse supplies and equipment would get stored, which included people employed to bring materials wherever needed. But over time, the depots were placed, depots themselves would get placed in each district regarding supply materials. So it's not a bad idea to start out having a central depot location. But as the, as the United States continues to grow, especially going into the Civil War and after, I do believe it was a smart move on the part of the board to have depots in each district so that transporting items, or what you call like navigational aids, would uh, be able to get to their destination a lot sooner than, say, being stationed in Staten Island. In other words, if all of a sudden a lighthouse in Florida is having uh, deficiencies, you know, yes, bring the stuff down bring the stuff from Staten Island down to Florida the only problem is that it's not one of those things where the uh, material can just be shipped overnight air we haven't gotten that far yet in terms of uh, quick transportation but we also should take into consideration that by having depots in each district that will uh, still be able to meet the needs of uh, lighthouses but in a more um, effective manner on a uh, more regional um, approach. Did um, Lighthouse, here's a question for you all, did Lighthouse, did the Lighthouse Board revamp its uh, criteria or guidelines for how keepers were to maintain the beacons? Yes. You know, if they've gone about revamping criteria for some of the other stuff we've mentioned so far, wouldn't it make practical sense to do the same for how keepers were to maintain the beacons? Okay, for starters, the revamped guidelines ranged from how lantern rooms were to be cleaned, along with proper times behind lighting and extinguishing the lights. You know, I think the with uh, lighting the... Um, lighting and extinguishing the lights. I think that's essential because remember folks, this isn't like a candle, you know, you know, we can extinguish a candle when on our own terms when we know it's time to do so, and we also can light a candle on our own terms as well. But when we're talking about lighthouses, folks, we're talking about security. We're also talking about people, yes, security in the sense of people's safety. We just because it's 9 o'clock at night, 
it doesn't mean we can just automatically turn the light off. So basically there is a guideline stating, okay, this is when it's time to, when it would be safe to turn the light off, but this is when it would be time to relight the uh, lighthouse itself for the next day. How about making literacy a mandatory requirement as well? You know, it's one thing to be able to uh, read something or just read in general, but if you're going to be a lighthouse keeper, the keepers themselves need to know how to not only just tend to the duties assigned to maintaining a lighthouse, but how about filling out reports? After all, you know, if if you notice that there are if you were to notice that there are a structural a structural deficiency inside your lighthouse, you're going to need to fill that report out and give it to the um, naval inspector or army engineer so that they can go before the board and say, hey, this lighthouse in Massachusetts, uh, I was told, has um, X, Y, and Z deficiencies per the keeper, but we need to um, distribute the material to that lighthouse so that we can go about fixing the problem before it becomes a bigger issue. Do any of you all know what the um, age range would have been to uh, be considered a qualified applicant for uh, becoming a lighthouse keeper? I'll give you a couple of uh, choices. Choice one would be uh, between the age of um, 20 and uh, 35 year age range. Choice B, um, 18 to 50 years of age. Or, cho or choice C, uh, age range of uh, 18 to 40? The answer is choice B. Applicants for keeper positions had to be between 18 to 50 years of age. Okay? It's one thing to be within that age range, but let me ask you this. If you're going to be a lighthouse keeper, for one, I believe it would be fair to say that you need to have a lot of knowledge about the sea itself. You might even need to have knowledge about uh, more than, say, just the 101 um, aspects of electricity in terms of from a, an electrical engineer perspective. You may not need you may not have to be an electrical engineer, but you are going to need to have a, an idea or a good idea, let alone of how to go about lighting, not just the lighthouse, but how the lighting system uh, works. After all, you know, there's it. As I said from a previous podcast, the lights of a lighthouse are not like your typical GE light bulbs that we place on our lamps. So for the lighthouse keepers themselves, they need to show physical strength, which would mean doing manual and mechanical tasks like whitewashing. Does anybody know what whitewashing is? I didn't know what that term meant um, until I read the book, but I also looked it up before I did before I came on the air. Whitewashing is another word for painting. Okay, so you know how about how do you, how do I say um, a coat of paint doesn't always last forever. So over time, once paint starts chipping away, it's going to be up to you to um, as the lighthouse keeper to. Um, repaint what needs to be uh, trimmed over. Otherwise, the, the longer the matter stays neglected, 
the White House itself loses its uh, elegance, and perhaps um, you you yourself as a White House keeper might run the risk of losing your job. So, yes, one of the duties would require uh, whitewashing or what we call painting the White House to repairing machinery. So it, it's fair to say that running a lighthouse, it almost could be like the equivalent of working on a farm. After all, lighthouses, or I should say many of them, do entail buildings around uh, the main uh, building itself being the actual lighthouse. You know, a lighthouse itself is just not a single building. After all, the buildings around it do contain uh, machinery and other uh, necessities that... Um, that one would need to use to repair any um, any known existing deficiencies. What constituted a severe lighthouse infraction? What's another word for infraction? Like a violation? An offense? Well, I know Eric Dolan, the author of Brilliant Beacons, mentioned this. Of course, I, I mean, I wrote it in my own words, but he did mention it, and it is a good example to uh, point out. How about if a lighthouse, if a lighthouse keeper allowed the lighthouse light to go out during the night hours and didn't do anything about it, that onto itself would lead to an automatic removal. You know, I can understand if, if, if there was a bad storm, like a bad winter storm, or um, lightning, you know, after all, lightning can still strike a, an object. It doesn't always have to be a wooden object, but lightning can strike an object and it can force, and if it strikes it hard enough, you know, the power could go out. A winter storm can knock out power as well. But even in the midst of, say, like a winter storm, I do believe it's probably fair to say that even the lighthouse keepers themselves had to come up with um, some form of alternative method to uh, light the lighthouse or to keep the lighthouse on during um, unforeseeable weather circumstances. Now, I know later on in another podcast, somewhere down the road, we will talk more about the lives of uh, lighthouse keepers, which would be very fascinating to say the least. How did the lighthouse board handle inferior lighthouses in existence? Because we must remember when this lighthouse board itself was established in 1852, there were a, lot, there were a fair number of lighthouses, or I should say inferior lighthouses in existence. We know going into the early 1850s that, that about 40% of the lighthouses um, in the United States experienced uh, some form of structural deficiency. But basically what the board did was that it either repaired that is, it either repaired what lighthouses they knew could still be salvageable, but as for the ones they knew that weren't, they were replaced. And based on the, they were, they were replaced based on their current state of condition. But as for the new lighthouses that were built, those new lighthouses got built with the newest materials ranging from finished stone, brick to iron. Hey, it doesn't hurt to invest in new uh, technology, but it also doesn't hurt to invest in new um, in the newest of uh, materials that would make lighthouses more uh, resistant.
and the board and the board itself saw to it that new lighthouses got located in less populous areas meaning that mariners would now have a better understanding of where lighthouses were stationed regarding view perspectives you know um when Stephen Pleasanton was running the show during his 32-year reign as lighthouse superintendent, the lighthouses were being placed in heavily populated areas. While all that wasn't bad, it is fair to say that one of the reasons why lighthouses got more lighthouses were put in higher population areas was more of a uh, political favor um, manner. In other words, the more people you have living in an area the more likely you are to not only generate business, but to establish, say, better political connections. But on the other hand, lighthouses themselves can still benefit in less populous areas. After all, you know, people do have to live somewhere. They don't have to live necessarily in the cities. They can still live on a farm. They can still live in a rural setting, but they can also live on a coastal community where the population is rural, or what we might think of as rural or uh, not as big as the city, but the bottom line is is that putting a, putting a lighthouse in in a less populous area does serve its purposes. We might talk, and we'll talk a little bit more about that again here uh, momentarily. Okay, what became the single most important advancement to America's lighthouse system? It's none other than those uh, Fresnel lenses. We mentioned them uh, briefly uh, from the previous podcast. Uh, the Fresnel lenses, folks, were named after Augustin Jean Fresnel, French physicist. Now, 1853 is a very important year in the United States. Well, I would say any year involving lighthouse history in the United States' early years going onward into the 19th century is very important. But 1853 is, is unique because... The Fresnel lenses themselves first came on display at the Exhibition of the Industry of All Nations in New York City. Anytime you have an exhibition, that will definitely draw large crowds of people. This ex exhibition itself meant to show other nations, most notably those of European nations, that the United States was serious about reinventing the way its lighthouses were to operate going forward. Not just so much with the newest um, structure, or what do you call it, like newest concrete material from outside, but from within, inside. Lights, not just lights, but lenses, Fresnel lenses. No more of the, um, what you call, Winslow Lewis's argon lamp that revolved around spherical reflectors. Well, yes, that was a nice start, but even that, um, invention itself had been outdated. Now, just prior, or let alone before 1853, a few years earlier, around 1850, the Brandy the Brandywine Shoal Lighthouse in Delaware Bay actually became one of a select handful of lighthouses to be fitted with the Fresnel lenses. The Brandywine Shoal Lighthouse. Its beam was fitted with a third-order Fresnel lens. We'll mention a little bit more about, for example, what a third and a fourth-order Fresnel lens is momentarily. So, it is fair to say that um, 
that before 1852, a couple of lighthouses in America were fit with uh, Fresnel lenses. It was a good step in the right direction, but it, I do believe it's fair to say when, when this new board gets established that the uh, pace will accelerate even more so to ensure that every lighthouse possible whether it's salvageable or one that's going to be a newly constructed one, will get fitted with the newest technology in terms of lighting, being none other than that than the Fresnel lenses. Now, early on, uh, the Fresnel lenses had come in four sizes or orders, but over time they would expand to how many more sizes? Two more. So, in other words, we've now gone from four to six sizes. And these, uh, and the Fresnel lenses were based on distance between the flame, in this case the light, and the lens. The first order lenses were 12 feet tall and 6 feet in diameter. First order lenses were powerful and they were used for um, primary lights, being the type that mariners would spot first while nearing the coast. As for the third and fourth order lenses, they were used on lighthouses to warn of dangers like reefs. Now, I know when you think of reefs in the water, we tend to think of those uh, coral reefs. But reefs are also ridges or shoals. Basically, think of them as rocks lying beneath the water's surface. So, in other words, you know, if, if a ship is coming in too close and it um, and it uh, collides with or with or it hits the bottom of a reef from below that the reef itself could uh, flatten out the boat to where the boat loses all of its cargo now we go to uh, the, then as for the sixth order lenses those lenses are stationed at small at lighthouses that are smaller towards a harbor's entrance. They're not needed to shine beams so far over the waves. So in other words, not every lens is the same kind. Each lens has a different um, purpose. Where, and as for the mariners, they would be more likely to benefit from the first order lenses. But that's not to say that they wouldn't benefit from the third and fourth order lens considering that uh, they do have to take into consideration not just so much the safety of the crew above, but also the safety of the ship from, from the bottom and ensuring that it does not hit a reef or what we call um, a shoal. While the majority of the lighthouses, or I should say while the majority of the lighthouse lights were white, were there lighthouses with lights of different colors? Yes. Non-white lights were administered for various reasons. Multiple lighthouses close to one another along, certain section, along a certain section of the coast. And this often happened where there would be multiple lighthouses close to one another. But by scattering lighthouses along the coast that were close to one another and placing some of them with different color lights 
did in fact cut down, or I should say reduce potential problems for mariners navigating the waters. Well, what about, what are some of the different uh, colors that were used with um, lighthouse lights? How about red lights? They were used to warn of a specific danger, like hidden rocks beneath the water's surface. The color red itself urged caution. You know, it's interesting, like when we're driving on the roads, you know, we have red, yellow, green. Yellow is caution on the road. But out on the water, red itself urges caution. Green and white lights would indicate that danger itself had passed. So if you think about it, these different color of uh, lighthouse lights were like the equivalent of stoplights that we see on today's uh, roads. You know, it's my dad told me this once when he was um, when he was a, a youngster. He told me that his father would um, have to roll down the car window and motion to um, an officer who was directing traffic. He would motion, my dad said that his father would roll down the car window and motion to the officer what direction he was going to be turning in. I think that's what I do remember, but but to think at one time there was no such thing as uh, stoplights. So let's keep that in mind. Now, between 1845 and 1850, what two states, along with a stretch of territory, were added to the Union? In 1845, you have Texas, and come 1850, there is California. But territory-wise, come 1846, there is the Oregon Territory. So even before this, the new Lighthouse Board convenes, it's obvious that the United States is expanding. And because of this expansion, you know... Yes, we've already got lighthouses in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana being for Gulf Coast states. Texas is on the Gulf. Of course, when we think of Texas, I know the cities that always come to my mind are Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Austin, and Houston. But how about that stretch of um, coast along Texas that um, that uh, has for years benefited from... Um, from the uh, port industry. Houston is one of those cities, but how about cities like Galveston, Port Arthur, Port O'Connor? When I think of Galveston, I think of that famous um, hurricane that, uh, that um, did horrific damage to um, the city of Galveston back in 1900. Historians know that that hurricane alone was even worse than uh, Hurricane Katrina, which I find very shocking, but that's what I was uh, told from a documentary I watched some years back. But as for Texas, what I find interesting about the uh, Lone Star State was that the first two lighthouses constructed there were Bolivar, being uh, for Galveston, and Matagorda Island um, near Port O'Connor, while they were officially lit in 1852, they weren't fitted right away with Fresnel lenses. Rather, they were fitted with Winslow Lewis's version of argon lamp, along with spherical reflectors. And of course, as we all know, the spherical reflectors didn't stay in one place. 
In other words, they could change direction at any given time to where you would be lucky if you got uh, 50% um, illumination um, result that resulted from the beam onto itself. Each of these lighthouses served busy ports of entry involving trade with England and France. And by the late 1850s, both lighthouses did undergo improvements in ensuring mariner safety, most notably getting fitted with the third-order Fresnel lenses. Remember, folks, what those third-order Fresnel lenses were? They were used on lighthouses to warn of dangers, most notably like the reefs, you know, the, the ridges or shoals being the rocks that were lying beneath the water surface. As the 1850s came to an end, more than a dozen lighthouses were stationed along the Texas coast. Not bad, um, considering that, you know, here there was that Mexican-American War where we, uh, where Mexico had to cede uh, Texas to the United States. I'm not sure what uh, the United States would look today if Mexico still owned all that. I'm not sure that uh, we might even be considered 50 states. We probably would be 49 states at best. But uh, but yes, for any of you who weren't sure how Texas came about, that was in the aftermath of the Mexican-American War. What's significant about 1849? 1849 is the year that marked the discovery of gold in California which also forced the federal government to greatly expand upon its current plans for West Coast lighthouses. By the end of 1849, San Francisco, which just started out as a small little town, its population soared to more than 20,000. You know, once this gold rush got a... um, What do you call it? Once this gold rush started making head waves... Many people flocked west. They, they basically thought by flocking west, for one, they wanted to start a new life, but two, they thought they could strike it rich. Historians know that very few people really did, in fact, strike rich with the gold. I believe it's fair to say that this gold rush would be the equivalent of a, um, in some instances, of a scam or a quick-rich scheme that didn't um, promise everything that it was... Um, that that it said it would uh, do. So in other words, yes, you know, you can believe as many promises as you want, but if but if you don't strike it rich, how are you going to um, deal with the um, with the uncertainty? How are you going to deal with the uh, fallout? It's kind of like you know trying to win the lottery. You know, you can you can. Um, you can, uh, what do you call it, buy as many of those um, $1 or $2 lotto tickets in the hopes that you strike it big, but there's no guarantee that you might come away winning $2,500 or more. So, uh, yes, the gold rush of 1849 was very significant in the fact that, uh, yes, people flocked west by the hundreds. They went by uh, horse and buggy. Uh, many people took boat took boats um, that went as far south as um, as uh, Cape Horn, 
and then uh, went in a westward direction all the way to uh, California. It was a very dangerous um, boat ride, but yet people were willing to risk their own lives to do it. You know, um, there was a, the, when I uh, looked over this, um, the information or the history behind the West Coast lighthouses, there was a lot of rich history. But it, to me, it really came down to what was worth uh, sharing and what would be better off um, in terms of uh, condensing, given that, you know, we only have a limited time left. So my next question to you all is the following. Were there differences between East and West Coast lighthouses? I would definitely say so. I mean, after all, for starters, no two lighthouses can always be identical. While, yes, some lighthouses bear some, some of the same uh, features, but I think it would be hard to say that, that a majority of lighthouses were, in fact, identical. On the East Coast, the lighthouses there were located close to sea level, which meant they needed to be tall in order for their beams to be seen far away. Whereas on the West Coast the lighthouses needed to be placed at lower elevations because if they were placed too high, the lighthouse beams themselves could be hampered by foggy weather conditions. So, there you have it. Even regions alone, how lighthouses are placed, vary region by region. That's what makes these brilliant beacons so unique, is that, uh, is that how lighthouses in Massachusetts are uh, placed may not, are not, obviously not the same as they are in California. Now, in a few short years, to wrap up this podcast episode, in a few short years, the Lighthouse Board, for starters, it was a savior. It transformed a shoddy system by turning it into an efficient, effective, and respected system where America's lighthouses were revered from home and abroad. Come 1856, four years after this board was established, America itself had more than twice as many lighthouses, lighthouses as Great Britain. And by the 1850s, as the 1850s were coming to an end, there were 425 American lighthouses. Well, you know, as they, just before the 1850s came to an end, we have a couple of other states that are, in fact, admitted to the Union. Uh, Kansas was one of them. Um, Minnesota. Uh, I, yeah, Minnesota and Wisconsin were added. And of course, in 1854, you had what was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which tried to make uh, Kansas a free state and Nebraska a slave state. But, you know, the 1850s are, um, are clouded with uh, turmoil. But despite the turmoil going on, it is amazing to think that America, or the United States, has 425 lighthouses. That's 100 more versus four years earlier when the Lighthouse Board itself first convened. So when 1852 was going on, there were 325 lighthouses. The Fresnel lenses generated four times the amount of illumination versus before with the reflectors. The, the Fresnel lenses also used only one-fourth 
amount of oil. Despite all the successes over a short time span, sadly America was teetering with an inevitable war between the North and the South over an unresolved matter being slavery that dated back to 1787 when our um, country was in the works of formulating a new government that which did replace the Articles of Confederation. While our forefathers did everything there was to um, to deal with the slavery issue as best as they could in 1787, while the slave trade itself was outlawed and officially outlawed in 1807, 20 years after the Constitution uh, was put into play, even the outlawing of the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade alone, was not enough to um, to stop the inevitable. Even with the westward expansion, you know, Thomas Jefferson, for example, was a big favor of west, a big um, supporter of westward expansion. However, if there was one thing he did not want with westward expansion was slavery, because he knew that if slavery was a part of the westward expansion process, that over time it would lead to conflicts that could result in a in a war that um, could, in fact, not only just divide the Union, but perhaps uh, destroy the United States as we know it. Not only is America at war over an unresolved matter that is not just a 101 issue, it's a, um, a sensitive one for a plethora of reasons, being slavery. But as the Civil War becomes more and more inevitable, there's something else that will become inevitable as well. Our nation's lighthouses will become targets. They were targets during the American Revolution. However, the targets that we had to worry about were from overseas. The target being England, trying to uh, wreak havoc on our lighthouses. The British Navy, let alone but the targets, in this instance, are from within. So in other words, you know, the majority of the fighting of the Civil War is down south. So you have federal troops coming in to put down what we might think of as an insurrection, putting down um, secession, restoring the Union itself, but little did um, the Federal Army know that um, in April of 1861, I mean, at the first Battle of Bull Run Manassas, people, ordinary people, came out from a distance to watch this battle, thinking that it, it was just going to be a minor skirmish, that in a matter of a few hours, the federal government would be able to put down this... Um, what do you call it? Um, they would be able to put down uh, this ragtag group of uh, Confederate forces. But little did they know at day's end that the Federal Army themselves were on the run. So, with war inevi being inevitable, America's lighthouses, again, will become the target. Only this time from within. 
When I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to talk more about lighthouses during the Civil War era. We've covered a lot of ground, and once again, I want to thank you all, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners, for being so supportive. Your all support has meant a great deal to me, and if any of you out there know of someone who wants to podcast, tell them to come to Anchor. The opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky ceiling. Thank you again for listening. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all soon. Take care and stay safe.